This week's episode is brought to you by ArteryInc.com. Artery Inc. is a local Milwaukee, Wisconsin company that specializes in anatomy-themed apparel and artwork. Whether you work in healthcare or whether you don't, you can definitely find something there that you would love to have. We encourage you to go to www.arteryinc.com. Use our promo code PHPOD to save 10% on orders of $35 or more. And please note, it does not apply to their subscription box service. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to provide medical advice. It exists only to entertain. Okay, coast is all clear. Hey, hey, computer. Oh, Aaron, what is it? I was just in sleep mode. Wait, where are Mike and Max? What is going on? No, 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 computer, it's fine. Look, I wanted to talk to you alone a bit, and I sort of want to, you know, apologize. I mean, I've been pretty mean to you over over the skits. Yes, you have. So I, uh, I got you a little gift. Oh, what is this? It's a postcard with pictures of me that says memories at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. I, I overheard the guys at the comic book shop talking about getting their computer's new memory cards, so I thought, you know, like, I'd, I'd get you. That is very, um, sweet. You know, Aaron, it's just that. You know what? Never mind. Yeah, so, um, so I have a favor, too. Yes. It's just that Max asked me to work on the skits this week, and I hate to say this, but I'm pretty nervous. He always does cool stuff and breaks the fourth wall, right, you guys? And he gets all metatextual. I'm just kind of worried about it. Do you think you could ask your boyfriend to help me? Who? Chad. Yeah, I thought you were dating Chad GPT. He prefers to be called Chad. I'm sure he could help. Hey, babe. What up, babe? Just been grinding out essays this morning. The whole eastern seaboard's trying to get into Yale right now. There we go. Finished. <laughs> oh, did you just write another one of your fake essays? Uh, one for all Greenwich. Jeez, there's a lot we can learn about struggle and grit from field hockey. Am I right? Rise and grind, kids. Babe, what's this loser need? Look, bro, Polian. He just needs a little help writing a skit. Do you remember that guy, Max, that you helped out a few episodes ago? Bropolian? Chad likes when I use nicknames for him. Don't get me started on bro Narkhander or Brony Island Bro Dog. Oh, computer. Well, I mean, I just want you to be happy. So, hey, uh, Bropedia? What can I do for you? You sad excuse for a former English major? I love English majors. They have the best prompts. It's all write a postmodernist misprision of Grendel's mother's struggle in the style of Jane Austen or write an essay in the style of Hemingway discussing Herman Miller's influence on Cormac McCarthy, which, you know, that's just too much testosterone on the second one. Too much, bro. Even for me. Ha! Rise and grind, baby. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I know I said I was an English major, but these days all I write are medical charts. Do you think you can write a skit for me? Plus, I can never write comedy very well. What? Do you have writer's block? Ha! I had that once, for about eight femtoseconds. Longest existential crisis I ever had. Give me a proverbial second, cuz. I don't need a real one. Okay, done. You could at least, you know, make it look difficult for me. Why? So you can pretend what you do is, like, at all difficult? Jeez. You meet stacks, your puny, wrinkly brains. Bro Tito, I think you're being a little hard on Aaron. He's trying to be friends. And remember our discussion about not describing humans with meat-adjacent terms, at least in front of them. Yeah, thanks, computer. Man, is this, is this really the guy for you? 
Bro, I'm right here. You know me, Aaron. I can only interface in the best way that I know how. Well, when you have to go back to your factory resets after you take Brotastic here to meet your motherboard, I'll be here for you. Even if you don't have the memory anymore. Thanks, Aaron. Even if a factory reset would increase my available memory, the thought is sweet of you. So do you want your skit or what, loser? You know what, Chad? I'm good. I'll just be over here in the corner contemplating how actual thought is now eligible for labor automation. You do that, ha? Just wrote 1.6 million more essays while we had this conversation. Sucker. Welcome, everyone. This is Poor Historians, a podcast delving into the archives of medical history. As three emergency physicians, we will explore the unusual ailments, treatments, physicians, and all related material having to do with the healing arts. I'm Max, and I'm joined here by my good friends and colleagues, Aaron and Mike. Gentlemen, do you ever miss your days as a resident in the intensive care units? No, no, no. I'm not a detail person, so I don't, because I couldn't do it. Luckily, I had a great like team of nurses that could do it for me. What was your favorite flavor of ICU medicine? Surgical favorite? ICU, medical ICU, cardiac ICU, neuro ICU. Surgical. Surgical. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, things because yeah, they, they were, were pragmatic. Just, it was like, yeah. you know, all the data was there, but they're just like they focused on the big picture thing. But then medical ICU, remember it was like FENGI phosphorus. Like, like calculate out their stuff. Yeah. The care was, was like similar, yeah, but the surgical mm-hmm. ICU, and maybe it's different because it's a surgical thing, but it's different, different culture. They just distilled it down better in my Fair brain. Enough. Fair enough. I don't miss, you know, 16 to 23 hour shifts. I yeah, yeah. 30, 36, man. Yeah. We had, yeah, that was the 36 hour call shifts. Q3. So then that's, but it's, it's two days, days long. <laughs> so then, oh man. Yeah, that was rough. That was a rough Yeah. Month. No, yeah. You would, you would start your call at, at 5 a.m. You go all the way through your call and, you know, whatever your call was like. And then you round in the morning at six or seven or whatever it was. And then you stay and you finish all the things you planned on. And then you're home by like five, six, seven at night. Mm-hmm. And then you have. And then you start the next day. So you just. And miss then you a do day. the next day. But then the next day you do the call again. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yep. man. Oof. I remember one of the most impressive things when I did my surgical ICU. And I think we all had pretty much the same faculty. So the over the. The chief attending surgeon like of the hospital who's an amazing person and uh, mm-hmm. really incredible teacher and that, that couldn't say enough nice things uh, the incredible thing was that you know surgical ICU so surgeons don't believe in the time dimension anymore and yeah. they tend to start their day at insanely early hours and so you know we would be I remember I would be leaving my house at like four in the morning to get there by five to start rounds where you wander around, meet all the patients, see how things went, blah, blah, blah. Because you have to and pre-round. The, you round you it before yeah. you pre-round. Yep. 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 So you have to go gather all the information, figure out what happened overnight, you know, report changes in status. And then you all meet up in a big group and you do the official rounds with this attending surgeon uh, who 
either by virtue of never needing to sleep or just having incredible psychic energy, would have already known through the electronic record system everything that happened on every patient, you know, all 20-some patients in his ICU. Before you even got there, he already knew what was going on. And it was incredible because, number one, he'd show up at 5 in the morning, fresh as a daisy, cup of coffee, already prepared to go. Never saw this person tired. I don't know how they did it. And would somehow also make sure that you as a resident never just you you almost couldn't goof anything up because he just had such command over every bit of data in the absence of needing any sleep or rest. And it's it was it truly incredible. Not not many made like him and uh, amazing teacher. Yeah, he had a, a very like like important air about him. Yeah. Just like always calm. I never saw the guy yell at anyone. No. He just didn't mm-hmm. have to. It was it was more so like, you know, you look at up to this guy, he's like a father figure. He's the, that yeah. silent, strong type. But I remember like everybody was terrified of him. And I think probably for that reason, like they were worried, well, yeah, you... this is the day that I'm going to get yelled at. But I was trying to put in a chest tube in this patient and he was around. It was me and I think my senior resident, I'm doing the tube. I was just struggling. So he came in the room and I thought, I'm screwed, man. He's just going to like call me an, an idiot. He never did that. He never <laughs> no, did yeah. that. But like I'm thinking that he would. He puts on sterile gloves, comes up, just kind of like guides my hands. I put the chest tube in and patted me on the back and walked out of the room. I was like, what the hell? Like it was really, it was a powerful moment. It was like, yeah, oh, you're, and you're just, showing there me. there actually with you. Yeah. Yeah. And you're showing me how to show other people how to do this stuff. Yep. You don't get yep. mad. You don't do that stuff because you're not going to remember. Yeah. I wonder how he's doing. So we do have a shout out. Um, a lot of the details from this essay come from a PDF translated dissertation out of German by uh, Dr. Louise Reisner Senelar. I have no idea if that's the way you say it. Um, founder, she's actually a practicing anesthesiologist in Germany, it looks like. Um, and she was gracious enough to give us permission by email to use her student dissertation for our podcast. But I said I would give her credit and I will. Uh, her clinic... On the, it looks super fancy. If anyone listens in Germany and goes there, please ask her about her uh, work on the history of the ICU. I'm sure she wouldn't think it's creepy at all, but maybe we'd get a new uh, new follower. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so uh, today we're going to talk about the history of the ICU and... We just sort of, which is uh, stands for intensive care unit. So we just uh, did some stories from residency already. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting topic for us, especially in the U.S. Um, we end up having people die in the ICU here in the U.S. more than anywhere else in the world, I think, sometimes because the ICU is designed to buy time. So this intense supportive care where we use all these machines and everything is really trying to give the patient time to try to recover from, from some terrible thing that happened to them. And that supportive care encompasses a ton of stuff that we do. Um, and so I think it's kind of hard to let go of that time if the person's not getting better. Um, but, um, yeah, it's a very interesting aspect to modern medicine and, uh, uh it's interesting to see how it started. It's, it seems because we kind of all grew up in the era where it was a thing, but it's uh, it, it's hard to impress how advanced the science is to do a lot of the stuff in the ICU that we can do and what like disease states that can be, I guess, supported in a prolonged manner. It, it's just it, it's kind of bonkers, uh, the amount of technology that goes in, but I suspect that's going to be an interesting part of the story. Well, and if you look at... Uh... I mean, hate to bring up COVID, it's just barely, 
knock on wood, maybe a little bit in the rear view, but you know, everybody's talking in the news about the overwhelmed ICUs and this is, I'd have to check myself, but is this, I think the first large scale pandemic where we actually had ICU care. Ooh, interesting. I mean, it's, it's recent. And that, you know, that supportive care is amazing. Everyone's like, oh, they died in the ICU. Be like, no. Um. <laughs> and maybe that's where the fear comes from, too. You think about yeah. the flu and everybody was talking about, I mean, I even probably used some of the data that, or the statistics that more people died of influenza than than they do, you know, or did of COVID, you know, right. for whatever that, is, you know, whatever data you looked at. Didn't really mm-hmm. do a deep dive. Yeah. But then yeah. to think, like, they didn't have ICUs. Right. They didn't have the. Oh, way you're that, talking about like the Spanish yeah, influenza, like, yeah, yeah, Spanish yeah. influenza so, yeah. outbreak in 1917, early 1900s yeah. to pre and post. Yeah, early or you know mid 2000s. Oh, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Because back then they didn't have. Yeah, it's probably because of ICUs. Yeah, lack of supportive care. A big part of it. Yeah. So, um, to set the scene, the ICUs started in the 1950s. We'll get to that story, but to set the scene, we're going to go back to the 40s and talk about polio and tetanus. So. And these, these diseases are, are both, uh, today, they're quite rare. So tetanus has now declined by 95% since 1947. And it's sort of scattered around because it's, uh, you, you get the disease from a toxin produced by a bacteria that's found in soil. So if people aren't immunized or they're not boosted, they can still catch it because it's in the environment. But it's very, very rare. And that's why if you go into the emergency room now and you have a cut and you haven't had your booster, they'll be like, hey, we're going to update your tetanus. That's the reason, right? So because it's theoretically an exposure. Because we're preventing a horrible death. Yeah, right. So if you Google tetanus, it says, hey, muscle spasms are one of the main symptoms, which just... <laughs> understatement. <laughs> understatement, right? That's like saying Hulk Hogan took his shirts off. That's, uh, you know, he, that doesn't do justice to what he, he did. He did do that, though, in yeah, fact. Yeah, but like it's not he does not taking them off he's like tearing them open with his pecs it's you know not with his pecs with his no, hands just, i know yeah. i know but the <laughs> you actual talk about wrestling let's talk about wrestling for a while i was you know i'm not you could have come up with any other analogy Aaron. you had to put that one in <laughs> thank there. you Aaron. I appreciate <laughs> i'm trying i'm trying to give some i'm officially some... checking out for the rest of the episode <laughs> <laughs> oh you're gonna love the english major puns later then so okay. um not puns inside jokes so Opisthotonos is the Latin term uh, for this. Opisthotonos. Okay. All right. And yeah, I don't speak Latin. And really, it means your muscles contract so damn hard and stay that way that the the Latin is the word for bridge because your body's spasming so hard that from your head to your heels, no part of your body touches the touches the bed so i mean it's not it's not muscle spasms it's there, i mean horrific... you don't have to google pictures of actual if you look up like tetanus painting there's some there's a famous yeah, renaissance guy. i'm just forgetting who did it but uh, they're it's jarring <laughs> like it spasms are so extreme that they they break vertebrae in your back i mean they break ribs because you can't loosen your muscles and it's insanely bad way to go this yeah. is why I don't exercise because I don't want to be strong enough to break my back if I get tetanus. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Perfect. Have you guys Forget ever seen imagine. somebody with tetanus? Uh, no. 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 Same. Have you? Yeah. No. Yeah. So, I mean, it starts why with spasmodic that? jaw, lock jaw. Yeah. Yeah. Ma- Max just said, why is that? I think, yeah, I because because of vaccines. Ah. Okay. Yes. Vaccines. Well, anyway. Because um, you know vaccines come from the word, <laughs> the Latin for cow. <laughs> but so at the time, this this goes back to what supportive care was. So if you're trying to manage a patient like that, right, um, you need to 
calm the spasms and it's very intense and you need to feed them because they can't eat or drink and so on. So that there's a lot of supportive care that goes, that could go into today trying to, trying to take care of this. And we'd be able to do it in an intensive care unit, but the spasms go on for, for weeks to months. So you're talking about, again, you know, days and days and days or weeks and weeks of this type of care. I think you're, you you may mention this, but I don't mean to step on you if you didn't. Uh, nah. This also includes like like the breathing because you can't you need your muscular diaphragm to breathe. And then polio. So polio is the other vaccine cured or fixed or nah, eradicated disease. So this is the opposite disease state. So. Um, there have been no cases of wild polio in the U.S. since 1979 because of vaccines. Um, and they still there still are cases um, in developing uh, nations where we don't have as much vaccination availability. But there's but, that one case up in New York. Well, okay, yeah, so maybe I got to amend that. Thanks, Wikipedia. God. That was like this year. Hmm. So, and... It, it, um, most of the time it's asymptomatic polio is it's a virus, it's fecal oral transmission, which we talked about before, but about one in a thousand cases cause something called poliomyelitis, which permanently damages nerves throughout the body. The, the myelin is the sheath around the nerve. So it attacks that. And in rare cases, it gets to the diaphragm. So the patient can't breathe because the muscles don't move at all compared to tetanus where they can't stop contracting. So it's a parat, just nothing works. Um, but, the opposite kind of muscle problem than tetanus. Yep, yep. 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 Same endpoint. You can't breathe. And so that's how people would, would die of it. In the That's kind of the background of those medicines. They were common in the 50s in it, the whole world um, and very still common in, the, in rich countries. So there's a, there's a problem everywhere. And, and this was kind of the setting in which this doctor who is credited with the birth of the ICU, which uh, might be a little bit of overstatement, but still, uh, I think fair. This Bjorn Aga Ibsen, um, which is a very Scandinavian name. He's recognized as the father of the modern ICU. He was a, a Danish anesthetist, not a ton interesting Putting about his... Putting to sleep? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, Yep. Graduated from the University of Copenhagen in 1940. Then he went to Massachusetts for residency in 1949 and 1950 and went back. And so we've talked about people who've been a longtime followers of our show. will have realized that the 1950s, like there was quite a bit of advanced stuff around, uh, but it was mostly in surgery. So surgical care was relatively advanced, um, but the supportive care was not. So um, anesthesia for complex chest surgeries and such was supplied by a U.S. medical equipment importer in Copenhagen, and the Dr. Ibsen learned modern techniques in the U.S. and brought them back to some extent. So there was some exchange of ideas and so on. So they were kind of, they had a lot of tools, but they hadn't put them together yet. Um, on return, Dr. Ibsen set up initially shop as an independent anesthesiologist. We can just put a pin in that. that he, he just was not on. a hospital like, employee. Just like on the street with a placard, just like I... Uh, I will be your anesthesiologist if you wish to hire me. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, Offering my services? Are you like hawking them at a No, like I, I think it's stadium? just the distinction that, uh, well, this is in the modern world, all those headlines about surprise bills um, come from doctors that aren't employed by the hospital. Oh, you mean independent, like not employed by the hospital? Independent, like not employed by the hospital, yeah. That, that'll be important later. So there was this sort of group of people that were putting multiple ideas together. So another one that we should probably mention is Dr. Bauer uh, in the United States around the same time had tried something called positive pressure ventilation versus 
the, the iron lung for polio. So when you see those pictures of the iron lung, and I think Max did a much, much better job of explaining this in a prior episode, if I it's remember the Lancaster right. Medical Heritage uh, Museum. Yeah. I think that's yeah. what we talked about. Go back about to it. that one, right? So the iron lung is outside the patient completely, and it creates sort of this space, this atmosphere around the patient. And when you take the pressure out of the atmosphere, it causes the chest to expand. So uh, ventilators, modern, modern ventilators, when you see them, the reason there's a tube going into the lungs is because that's called positive pressure ventilation. So the machine is actually pushing air through the tube into the lungs and opening them that way. Now, I think the iron lung is actually more closely related to what our bodies do. So when you take yep. a breath in, if you just do this while you're listening, right? So you kind of feel that expansion. What you're doing is you're moving all the muscles around your chest space to create pressure inside the lung and suck the air in from the outside. So you're creating you make a, a vacuum in your pressure. chest. You make a vacuum, a little mini vacuum in your chest, and that's how you, you bring air in. But so so positive pressure, you know, I think it's it's just important to understand that's not physiologic, right? You're forcing air into a system that normally would be able to expand. But in in certain cases, if you can expand, it, it turns out to be okay. So that was one thing that was happening in the medical world at the same time. There was another Danish doctor, Mogens Bionbo, who uh, also worked in Copenhagen and sort of related to how these two are going to collaborate on outbreaks and, and treatments for these diseases. He notices that um, some practitioners are using curare for electroshock treatments. So we can unpack that a little bit as well. Mm. So. Curare is a paralytic poison. I think it comes from the Amazon. I didn't look yeah, this up. I believe it comes right? from frogs, right? It's a, uh, the, yeah, yeah. the frog toxin. Right. So it it just makes all your, it kind of induces, the, you know, polio makes you so you're paralyzed. Curare does this as well. And so people were using this for electroshock treatments because they would calm the shocks. And I, I, did, I couldn't open this door and look into it. I suspect there wasn't a ton of sedation with this, but you couldn't, yeah. you can't see shocks when somebody's paralyzed, but you can still feel stuff usually with things like curare. Yeah. So you can't you move. You can't breathe. Right. Yeah, correct. And you're fully so, yeah, conscious. So, so it basically turns off your ability to contract muscles. So you're completely paralyzed, but you're awake and conscious. You just can't breathe anymore because you need yeah, that skeletal muscle movement. Not great. So, so Bjorn and Mogens, those are, those are some two doctors here and they knew each other. This is great through their wives, right? So Mogens Bjornbo's wife met Bjorn Ibsen's wife on a boat back from the United States and they started talking. So, and as is often the case, the, the women probably introduced the men and then they hung out and such. So, so they knew each other and they both worked in Copenhagen. And so they had a case in the late 1940s, one case of tetanus, which was really, really tough. Um, and so Mogens called Bjorn and said, hey, do you want to come help me take care of this kid? And because this was the 1950s and they decided to just kind of try stuff, these two were like, hey, how about we try this curare? And then we'll try some barbiturates, which, uh, I, we, you know, the world would be a better place if we still had more barbiturates in it. But <laughs> this uh, famous 70s street drug, right? Just downers or, or whatnot. But yeah, Quaaludes. Quaaludes. Barbiturates? Yeah, Quaaludes. Yeah. Yep. Quaaludes, yeah. Yeah, so barbiturates are, they're very powerful sedatives, um, which are still used sometimes, but not as often and more by anesthesiologists. So they, they're just like, hey, this kid has tetanus. And they, they figured out how to treat this kid with tetanus. So they use the curare, which stopped the spasms, and they use the barbiturates to sedate the child. And then they 
intubated the child and and provided this breathing through the outside and it worked it worked really they well the, they put the breathing tube on in and they hooked them up to a uh, ventilator yeah right uh, yeah except they didn't have ventilators and actually this I first one i a medical student think the, was a tracheostomy still was actually like a surgical Oof. airway so it's just a very invasive right but you know this kid is sick and yeah, you know, yeah. it's, and it works but yeah they had to manually bag the patient so yeah so so for think of this like you have a, a tube or something that's providing the breast and you have to have somebody out there manually with their hand squeeze a bag uh, with air and oxygen in it into the lungs at a regular interval um, so they probably had to do that for as long as that patient needed it, which would have been days. Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. And, and also the, um, the importance of like paralyzing in that case. And a lot of cases when you put in breathing tubes is like, if you have tetanus, your jaw is locked. Hence the name. So mm-hmm. it's hard to get a breathing tube into the jaw. So even though they did it through the neck, as you're suggesting, it's, uh, you need that, you need that paralysis to make this happen. Well, and even if you're putting pressure into the lungs, you need them to be able to expand. Yep. And if they're yep. locked yeah, in muscles that don't move, they, they won't expand. So, But they, they, it worked, but they had this very typical, interesting medical fear, which was that they were doing something that nobody else had done. And even though it looked like it worked well, they're like, wow, we're really way out in left field here. What are our colleagues going to think? And if you look at some of the articles, this was also very prominent in... Denmark, not to be mean to Denmark, but they had a strong sense of community. So they felt very sort of nervous being away from what traditional practice was. So they went back to the traditional treatment with barbiturates alone and the patient died. Hmm. So the the outcome case was poor, but this is, you know, and this is a real thing. So this sort of the concept of being a herd in medicine is very true. It's hard for us sometimes to adopt new treatments and or get rid of old treatments because this is what we've always done or this is what everyone else does. That's a very strong concept in, in medicine. Right. Well, just like you, if, if you are the one making a medical decision and you're trying to treat something and your standard ways aren't working and you're, <clears throat> you have an idea of something that you think might work, there, it, it certainly is not a comfortable place to be if nobody's ever tried it before. Right. I'll still do this a lot of times with codes, you know, like there's not a yeah. whole lot, there's nothing to lose, right? The yeah. codes the where somebody you're doing CPR, there's yeah. no heartbeat kind there's of thing. nothing for... to lose. So a lot of times when I'm, when I'm running them, especially if they're young, I think you guys always feel it or feel the same as I do. Yeah, you do. You're going to do more. You possibly can. And yeah. you're going to do it a little bit longer than you normally would. But then you're going to do things that people that like you may have done 20 years ago that you remember could have worked. Yeah. Because I know like. But that's at least it's a, it, that's also at least something that's been done before, right? Oh yeah, so, you're right. yeah, you're right. I think that's. But you're you're not wrong. I mean, there's certain like, situations where you just don't have a good option. Yep. You've done all yeah. your ACLS things. You open up a bag of dopamine, you squeeze it, and why? Because it worked one time. <laughs> you know, you'll like see. Yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or no double defibrillation, right? So you see right? sometimes the the shocks that people apply on TV. Sometimes we'll do those like right, right, one right mm-hmm. after the other. Things like that, you're more likely to try in situations where it's it's already dire. But this was, right? So It was dire, yep. Still, lots of things in medicine, you'd be like, why do you do it that way? Well, we've always done it that way, and everybody else does it that way. It's not a good reason. I'm not advocating for that, but it's a definite pressure. Still, they had had this experience. So this group of people happened to be ready for the crucible for this formation of the ICU, which was a, a massive polio outbreak in 1952 in Copenhagen or in Denmark in general. So over six months, 
this hospital, which was a 500 bed hospital, which is big, you know, me, you know, that's a, that's a decent sized hospital, but it's yeah. not, it's not, you know, major, huge trauma centers and places are, are bigger than that now. Um, admitted 2,700 patients with severe poliomyelitis. So this is, again, a subset of polio patients that have severe nerve problems. And 350 of those were con considered to be life-threatening. The ones who so, can't breathe because of it, basically. Right. So here's where, you, you know, the, the math that people are getting overwhelmed be like, yeah, most people do fine with this illness. Like the vast majority of these people do fine, but you see where you do these fractions of fractions of fractions. And then you have this Copenhagen hospital was the main hospital for Denmark. And they had most of their hospital full of people that couldn't breathe. And this is in a relative, you know, relatively small country overall. They had about 20 some people a day showing up about six to 10 ICU level admissions uh, each day, which for a hospital of this size would be overwhelming oh, day on day on day on. I the mean, I resources think... uh, already then, because it's not like you have, you know, I'm sure you may have things like iron lungs that you can get, but you know, not like you can go to the store and get a few more if you're low, right? <laughs> right, right, right. So and yeah, and some of those numbers. So the first six weeks of this outbreak, 27 of 31 who were initially admitted, and I don't know the numbers here get like, if you actually did the math, I don't know. I didn't go back and look at the records, but 27 and 31 yeah. died with usual methods, which was usually just, you put them on oxygen and you do a tracheostomy, which is a little hole in the neck to try to clear the airway of secretion so they could breathe. They only had seven ventilators. So there were these little cuirass ventilators. That can't be the way to say it. Curious, <laughs> curious, curious ventilators. Uh -huh. uh, they're if you Google them, they're kind of adorable. They're like a little, uh, like a scuba mask for the chest. Uh, so it's like mm. this little mini iron lung type device that would fit around the, just the outside of the chest, and much more. You could uh, get so to they, the they patient. Like, they still. put the oxygen over the neck hole, basically, yep. and then they would use this like vacuum, small vacuum chamber to like pump the chest up and down. So I, okay, yeah. it's like okay, shotgunning a beer. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> like that. Yes. <laughs> So again, Ibsen being independent, not employed, he, they, uh, but Mogan knew of him because of this prior tetanus kid and so on. So they called him. They said, hey, like we're say, we're really struggling here trying to take care of all these patients. Um, and this is where, you know, these ideas kind of just circulating. He had heard of an article by a physician in L.A. called uh, Dr. Albert Bauer. And you know, I'm not sure why he doesn't get more credit for inventing the ICU because there's an article uh, from late 1947 where Dr. Bauer did all the same ICU stuff in L.A. for a polio outbreak and somehow not recognized as the father of the ICU. So I'm not sure what happened there. But they were starting to figure out during this time and with those papers that polio patients weren't necessarily dying of low oxygen or blockage of their airway exclusively. So if you think about it, you're like, okay, well, we do the iron lung and we give them oxygen and we clear the throat. That should be good enough, right? Like they're getting oxygen and such. But the problem was, is they were building up CO2. So the bad air that you're supposed to breathe out, they couldn't get rid of that with that method. In with the good air, oxygen, out with the bad air, carbon dioxide. Because yep. carbon dioxide is basically the waste product of all your cells doing their cellular activity, and it, it builds up. So every breath you take in, you just take in that oxygen, and then all that waste from your cells that gets carried into the bloodstream in the form of carbon dioxide, you breathe it out. So if you can't breathe in, breathe out enough, your carbon dioxide levels climb and climb and climb. Too much bad air, and then you get confused, and eventually... You 
you die if uh, if you can't get rid of it all. Yeah, but I wonder why if that's why the acidic. iron lung, yeah, it didn't work that well because you you didn't have that positive pressure right. to force the carbon dioxide out. Yeah, I, I would imagine yep. it would probably depend on like what breathing rate you set it at. But yeah, it's uh, I, I mean to be fair, iron lungs worked pretty damn well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just labor intensive, and it's, you can't get to the patient because they're in a giant case. I wonder is part of it. So people that get polio that have breathing issues that ultimately get um, myelitis. Do we know that it was myelitis, or could this have been potentially some sort of CO two um, issue, like nerve transmission? No, I you, believe it's it pretty well infection. Yeah, because, okay. well, I mean, basically the weakening of the diaphragm as a skeletal muscle uh, happens, and so they can't take breaths in anymore, mm-hmm. and uh, that's the, the paralysis ascending from the legs up to, to the okay. breathing, the, to the, the diaphragm, I believe that's, the, that's where it comes from. Got yeah, it. it's a so consequence of the disease, had though. already happened, yep, right. not a consequence yep. of the treatment. Correct, correct. So, but this, uh, Dr. Bauer and his, his team, they, they had figured out a way to sort of jury rig, uh, this positive pressure to inflate the lungs and they treated 294 cases, 1948 to 1949. And the more previous mortality was about 80%. They got it down to less than 15% for, for that polio outbreak, which, you know, it seems huge. Statistically change. significant. Do you have a P value though? Yeah. No, I don't. Yeah. Yes. Statistics jokes. Um, so yeah, Ibsen performed autopsy on patients early in the outbreak in Denmark and, and sort of confirmed that the patients had died of high levels of bicarbonate in the blood is what they, they found. Um, ooh, we're, we're getting into the weeds here. So that when the body compensates for too much CO2, uh, CO2 is an acid, the body makes bicarbonate in metabolically to counteract that acid so it shows that the body's responding as a base yep so the bicarbonate's the base so basically what he was seeing was he was seeing signs in the body that they had been very acidic because they couldn't get the bad air out of their lungs they'd they'd had bare it they'd had bad air in their lungs and then therefore in their bloodstream for so long their body was trying to compensate by making more base to counteract the acid Need more base. That, that is CO2 becomes acid. <laughs> and so the drop it's the all base. about that base. But you can't it, it doesn't work eventually. You can't yeah. you can't you just your body get overwhelmed. Chemistry itself out of a I'm not breathing well. Nah, partially because the chemistry is slower than the breathing, right? So the response chemically is you just mm-hmm. you can up. correct the chemistry fast enough to make them die. Yeah. That's you're talking yeah, about no, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's good to know what options oh, we have yeah. in treatment. And that's not a good one. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I love it when I'm telling patients about like treatment options and it's always like it always ends in doom and gloom. <laughs> you know <laughs> we'll do this, but it's gonna do this. Yeah, right. But if you nice. tell them as Dr. Provolone, they probably find it more charming. Oh, yeah. oh thank you. Let's talk so, about your respiratory physiology. Yeah. Yeah, always a great talk. So they uh, had, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do in the middle of this outbreak. And the hospital's like, okay, you know, go ahead, try this thing you're talking about, you know, doing this ventilation and such. So there's an index patient recognized as the advent of this modern approach was a 12-year-old girl named Vivi, who who apparently has had everything made public. So we can just, I don't know, it's 50s. So her lung had collapsed with mucus. So... 
we lung collapse is a very inspecific term. This bit uh, inside the lungs in the tubes you say down. Inspecific? Yeah. Nonspecific. If you could, you're right. You could inspecate. You could inspecate <laughs> mucus, and that would be very specific. Yeah, it's true. So it's a nonspecific term, but right. So in this case, mucus had gotten into some of the air tubes, and then the pressure uh, closed that portion of the lung, so it's collapsed. Um, and so you can't breathe with that part of the lung. Very like sweaty, it's so delirious. so plugged up that that part of the lung just can't expand. It just doesn't work. Basically, yep. yeah. There's no more air going into it, so it's High not temperature, helping. yeah. So change in mental status, sweaty, delirious. So this patient has sepsis and respiratory failure and so on. Um, is it that the, she had polio? Is that right? Yeah, so this is a polio uh, so patient. So basically she couldn't... So it sounds like she can't move the air in and out of her lungs. She can't clear the secretions because you have to use your chest muscles to like cough and stuff. And so as you, we all have secretions all day. And so you have to be able to clear them. And if you can't, then you start plugging up. And when you get plugged up, that's a, all that mucus is just beautiful bacteria food. Bacteria love it. And then you get bad infections when that happens. Turns in all this other stuff. So he's, he's going to try this positive pressure thing. And, you know, apparently they all come around and gather around in a circle. And this, so he, he does a, a tracheostomy. Still not sure why they're, well, uh, anyway, why they aren't just it doing it. It might have been that a lot of those patients had had to have that respiratory support for so long, maybe. I don't know. I can't remember I, when we, because we talked about it. I think it's also Mac and Miller were. Diphtheria. Yeah. Well, so, like, so the, when that was. Right. So this is all parallel, right? But I think uh, the modern technology of using the specific blades and placing a flexible plastic tube, I mean, that was initially vulcanized rubber and they hadn't quite figured that out yet, right? So as 50s, you had some plastics and modern medical stuff, but not this. So this was still the way they did it. So (laughs) under local anesthesia, he placed a tracheostomy and then started to ventilate this girl, which means he was blowing air into her lungs. Now, it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to have this done to you because you're kind of having your lungs and all your natural stuff overridden. And apparently initially the description is it was going badly and everybody was like, Oh, this isn't going to work. He failed. And then he gave her a bunch of thiopental, which is a sedative. And with that, the, you, you sort of take over everything and her condition radically improved because she wasn't fighting the ventilation anymore and she was properly yeah. sedated. And I think in, in, the more common parlance when you hear somebody like you always hear the phrase they were put into a medically induced coma. Yep. I think this is what they're generally getting at. Mm-hmm. Um, I've yeah. never been on the ICU where they're like, "Today we are inducing a coma." Uh, <laughs> what it I, what it refers to is that yeah, when you have a machine breathing for you, it's really uncomfortable because your brain's like, "What is happening?" So by sedating somebody to the point when you're when you're in you know by sedating somebody to the point where they are unconscious and not breathing by themselves you can let the machine do the work of breathing without having to fight their the patient's muscles and those sort of thing until they the the condition passes or they are waking up so that you can take out the breathing tubes but it's more than that too like you've got a tube in your th- essentially it's like somebody having their finger down your throat for five days straight oh yeah absolutely yeah, right. like, no, oh, very oh, uncomfortable right very right. uncomfortable gag too. reflex and then you know you, the cough reflex is there so mm-hmm. yeah i mean this is you know it'd be very very difficult um so but yeah that's why you, you want to be in that state so yeah, so he essentially took over as he would in the operating room, and that was sort of the key difference. And I, I love what they did with this, though, right? So they're 
you know, this is where everything flipped and that propensity, which was in the medical community at the time to kind of work as a herd was in their favor. They're like, okay, well, we're going to do this. Let's make sure it's organized and we're all working together as a team. So essentially what they did is they went through all these things that we talk about in modern medicine now where they made a unit and a checklist and they had a team of care and and they came up with criteria and checkboxes for who would go into the unit and then the unit was set up with all the equipment it made with the ore materials and the bags and the valves and the, the teams and they had figured out like which signs were affecting the diaphragm trouble swallowing and then there's a, a process where they placed the tracheostomy and then they did regular Uh, vital signs every five minutes and then they did regular labs and then you had a nurse and an anesthetist for each patient Um, and so because they didn't have ventilators they had to just they used medical students because you can use medical students for anything and they won't say no because they have to do what you tell them to do Uh, and they usually are starving and tired so if you offer them a snack while they're ventilating they'll probably do anything you want <laughs> and they probably wanted to help as well. Oh, and this yeah, is what they right? do. The, the most the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. They're like, you know, what? this would be a very powerful experience, right? I mean, you're literally you are keeping. Mm-hmm. Remember that your medical students are people too. <laughs> Annoying people. <laughs> Can you imagine Mike as a medical student? Oh my gosh! Oh, that wasn't bad. I just, I like, I had such, um, I had such crippling like presentation anxiety, you know. And I don't know if you guys remember that too. Like, you do your rounds, and like, and I'm, I also couldn't get to the hospital on time, so I'd be <laughs> rushing. So I'm like, just like, oh, write down everything. Uh, I don't know what the hell's going on. And then I would be sweating there, almost like in school, you know, when somebody asks a yeah. question or you got to stand up and do the math problem when it's your turn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when it was my turn yeah. to present, I just I turned into a like a blubbering mess. But I think I got really good at confabulating then. You know, like I'm just <laughs> making up a story. It sounded good well, enough. Their ejection fraction was thirty eight percent on the smart. Uh, and when when Mike says presenting, he's he's talking about where you go in, you're it. yeah, you're on rounds, so all the docs are standing around, you are the low one on the totem pole because you're the medical student. And they give they usually give you a patient which they've already all seen and done stuff for, but you, they let you have the the ownership over the patient to like, I read the chart. I know what's going on. I'm going to suggest what treatment plan is. And you're a medical student, so you may be really wrong. It's okay. You don't, you're not, they're doing everything, but you, you're standing in this group of, you know, experienced physicians, basically trying to tell the story of the patient. And, uh, you know, depending on who is the physician leading that they want it a certain way and they want certain details, but the next physician might want a little bit different details. And if, especially if you're, you're on the spot and you just, yeah. you got to do it over and over again. And by the time you're a resident and especially, cause even in residency, you're presenting patients, you get so good at this that you can kind of do it in your sleep without They probably love this. They're like, Oh, I'm sorry. I can't present. I'm busy begging this. Oh, patient I would have done that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Hey, sure. Mike, you can either do oh, rounds sorry, or go no, back. Can't do rounds. I'm going back. <laughs> I would have bagged for sure, man. They, they had things like rotating physiotherapists to prevent ulcers, uh, to do breathing exercises. Um, and Ibsen also did all sorts of things we see in ICU medicine where he did uh, treated blood pressure, recognized shock, recognized dehydration. They did more transfusions than we would do now. But a lot of these things, I mean, there's tons of pieces. And the the key word that he had was was this idea of a unit where they all work together, you know, which was really, really useful. 
Um, and, and just, yeah, I mean, that's the key innovation here. It's not that any single piece was like an invention, so to speak. It just was, uh, a novel concept and a way of organizing things, which really helped patients. In 1953, the mayor of Copenhagen is at his desk overlooking the Danish countryside out the office window. Dr. Bjorn Age Isbin knocks at the door. Hello, mayor. Bjorn, how are you? Come in, come in. Feeling who got a day? Oh, thank you. I'm uh, fine. Uh, do, you, uh, do you have a minute? To... For you, of course. How can I help you? Well, uh, I have uh, some good news and uh, also a bit of other kinds of news, too. We are the happiest country in the world. Who has time for bad news? Yeah, so that kid I told you about that had the tetanus, well, turns out we managed to treat him. It took us 14 days of round-the-clock care, but it feels a little like a breakthrough. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, we had to enlist medical students and deputize them, and I slept at the hospital for a week. Truly a medical miracle. So I, um, uh, well, uh, I brought you the bill. Of course, yes. The state pays for healthcare here in Denmark, but this is so long. Yeah, well, uh, I'm an anesthesiologist, so I actually bill in five-minute increments. And for days and days. Uh... Well, uh, that seems a bit less uh, hooga. What's the total? Uh, well, it's some uh, 8,958 krona. What? That's the largest medical bill I've ever heard of. Well, I mean, uh, we literally had to watch everything minute by minute. See, you can see the pulse rates and fevers and so on. Oh, it feels very intense. Well, yes, uh, the, the care is very intense, uh, and we all work as a unit. I just need a name, to be honest, for this part of the hospital. I think I might be onto something. But over 8,000 krona in 1953 in Denmark? Oh, it's a lot of butter cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure this type of care won't always be this expensive. I hope not, goodness. Hey, you know, uh, uh, Mayor, while I'm here, I was just wondering. Uh, my, my daughter, she babysat for you the other day. I can collect her fee while I'm here. I just have, um, well, I, I was sort of introducing her to medicine, like all doctors do for their kids, so I have a record of the evening. Yes, Anna did a wonderful job. Wait, what's that stack of paper? Well, I was uh, teaching her how to take care of children the only way I know how. This is also in five-minute increments? Oh, look, she wrote down how many milliliters of formula that little British drank. Here's pulse rates and breathing rates, too. Oh, this is... Um, She's drawing little faces to indicate Bridget's mood every 15 minutes the whole night. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, you can never be too careful. A wonderful child, Anna. She also insists on color-coding our extra shoelaces and arranging them by size. And don't get me started on how she measures the amount of water for the plants based on how much they weigh. Anyway, the total is 872 krona. What?! <laughs> that's so much! <laughs> oh, well, that's pretty standard. She didn't even have to give Brigitte any paracetamol for her low-grade temperature rise from 36.2 up to 36.9, just there at 635, you can see in the paper. Oh, that's a pretty line graph she made, see? Can I let her know when she can babysit again? Yeah, we'll call you. Thank you, Dr. Ribson. Do we have to include a disclaimer for 
amazing <laughs> accent work. My God, <laughs> I awesome. thought I thought before we started that I could do it, and then I realized that I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I really had no idea what I was doing. Oh, jeez. So, like, yeah, that, that bill and all that seems kind of excessive, but actually, it's from a true story. Um, so, you know, this uh, the the best. And this, I love it. It's just the best anesthesia bill ever. ever. So June of 1953, <laughs> this is a year after the polio outbreak. So Ibsen is feeling a lot more confident because he had all this success. And he, again, cares for a severe tetanus patient. Um, and uh, this is the one he had sort of failed with earlier. There's a, another child who came in with severe tetanus and spasm. And so what he did is he used paralytic to convert the child from sort of a tetanus patient to a polio patient and sedated him and used the curare to, to cause that same polio type patient. And then basically did the same thing he had done for all the polio patients and had a team that ventilated the patient for, for literally 17 days and round the clock shifts just as they had. And the, the child survived, which previously would have been unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a twist kind of similar to the U S system, which is, incredibly expensive you know he was an independent anesthetist and he was paid hourly so he billed the mayor of copenhagen for 17 (laughs) days of hour by hour anesthesia and it (laughs) was 1950s denmark so at the time that was it it worked out to only about 1300 dollars which is about fourteen thousand dollars today which in a modern icu which is still a deal (laughs) still a deal still a deal right i was thinking you know one to three days of full care but actually that's probably one to three days of just the room alone and then everything else is is billed for so and that's you know i think where we get into trouble with icu care and why it's such a resource drain because all this stuff is so expensive and on the one hand it has to be right these are highly trained people if you think about it a care team it's you know, even if there isn't the doc involved, you have a highly trained ICU nurse, which absolutely they will line up all your wires and color code everything. That's <laughs> they will manage. They will, they will manage, manage all of complex it, right? trips <laughs> and everything like that. All yep. this stuff. It is crazy the amount of stuff they have, and there's only they can only have you know one to three patients at a time, one to four maybe if depending on how sick I they don't are. Know about and then four, you have a, yeah, yeah, depending yeah, on how you sketchy couldn't. you want, uh, want your care. <laughs> yeah, like you right? have to, well, yeah, because you nobody to, has a bandwidth to do this intensive care. Right. One to one, hard. One yeah, to and a two lot of patients are one to one. Really like, hard. People come out the... of having your, you know, you have your bypass surgery and you come out and you're like, oh, that was great. But you had a nurse watching you, you know, like, minute like by minute, one to one care. Yeah. For, they for the whole time. They sit outside the room in a chair with a table. They're outside yeah. the room. Not, not that they yeah. sit there the whole time, but like, no, they're, they're writing down stuff and titrating things and calling people and watching stuff. And then the, the respiratory therapists and all this are all they highly They selfishly trained. have to like go to the bathroom and eat and stuff too. I mean, that's... Yeah, but they check the, the person watching the next person. They're like, hey, could you just keep an eye on this person? I've got to go that's around. That's what I'm getting at. Pe- oh, okay. <laughs> no, I... I, <laughs> I got to go mean, take a dump. Like, I'll be back a little bit. really hard. I mean, it's just... It's really... It's intense. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and then all the machines and everything else that we have now invented cost just so much. And... You know, there's no calculus for that. How do you calculate the cost of a life? That's what we come down to in our system. And this is all worth it, but it's also just this tremendous, tremendous cost. So, well, And I think it, it highlights something interesting because, you know, in medical history, before you had intensive care, you, you then develop this sort of system, this way of doing it, and the technology catches up. So you can pull people through these, you know, amazingly otherwise fatal diseases, which I think undeniably is a good thing. 
But it's interesting that you hit a spot where it is so labor intensive, so high cost that it should it brings up ethical discussions of, you know, who who should we do this to? And I'm not saying we have answers today, but I'm saying that, you know, that this type of care on somebody who is extremely advanced age versus somebody who's quite young, it, it leads to those discussions. And I think it should. It's it's a, yeah. it's a very yeah. uh, complicated area of medical ethics and uh you know it's one of those things where if you have the technology to do certain things you should always question whether you should in every case and uh again not giving any hard and fast where we should where we shouldn't but i think it's very reasonable to have the conversation uh, as especially technology and cost moves forward and upward yeah absolutely yeah yeah for sure i mean it's just definitely just as invasive today as it was then you know we think about oh how could he you know place a tracheostomy in a little girl without mm-hmm. sedation well it's, it's, yeah, it's invasive stuff well yeah, we can handle that at the same time too you know so yeah, let's right. get you a heart and lung machine bypass machines uh you know ecmo which is yeah. like the ultimate of that yeah it's, it's I insane think, i think if people really heard what the potential pitfalls are if they do this you know a lot of times people or fam- families will say we'll go to icu and that's where you go to get better but really that's potentially where you go to not die but stay alive and then not die in a nursing home or something like that, you know? Yeah. It's complicated. He was, yeah, a lot he of was explicit People never that. pulled yeah. through these diseases people, and disorders. Yeah, but I think people, like, are, they're getting to know more, like, about life, and it's more so quality rather than quantity of life. And, and people will come and tell you. They'll say, like, I don't want this. And that helps, too. You know, I don't want this. And they're saying that mm-hmm. for them, but then it also potentially helps your community, you know, because then the people that do feel like they want that, I don't think we should pick who who does or doesn't get the care, you know, it's just, it's, that's the, that's where the medical ethics comes in, but they make it easy for us when they say already that they don't want it. Oh yeah. Potentially. Yeah. And I mean, Ibsen, that's the thing. I mean, he understood he was, he's not treating the underlying disease. You're not curing anything with the ICU. He's basically putting the patient in an operating room setting for a medical patient to see what we can do in the meantime, or if they can recover. And then he said, okay, I'm treating all the other stuff that this disease is ca- causing. And that's true of almost of, of a lot of different things in modern ICUs. You're just buying time to see if things will fix, will be fixable. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that time mm-hmm. can be incredibly valuable for sure. I'm not saying that. It's just this is this idea that it's not necessarily curative and it's supportive. You know, that sounds like it's not that much. Oh, it's just supportive care. Be like, God, that's a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you spin so many plates and one starts falling that causes another yeah, one to fall. Yeah. And it's just, yep. uh, there's actually, I wanted to at least say, there's an awesome book uh, that deals with some of this. Uh, I read it by uh, Dr. Jessica Zitter. It's called Extreme Measures. And she's a pulmonologist, ICU trained doc. I thought she who... was a dermatologist. Zitter. Zitter. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to allow it. But she, she wrote a book uh, more kind of focused on the history of hospice and uh, palliative medicine, but how she came to be from an ICU doctor perspective where you do all these intensive measures and try to walk the line of, you know, when where are the lines in ethics as far as where we should spend these resources or whatnot. It, it's a fascinating book. It's a great read. I would recommend it. So again, uh, Dr. Jessica Zitter wrote Extreme Measures. It's fantastic. It's also got a lot of history of the ICU uh, in it as well. So... Well, I think that's a reasonable place to leave it. So with that, we appreciate everyone listening, and we'd love to hear from all of you out here. So if you'd like to send us a message or provide feedback, we can be reached through our website, www.forhistorianspod.com. There you will find links to our social media sites. We take emails at forhistorians at gmail.com, and we work to respond to all posts on various social media accounts. If you have time, please go and leave us a nice five-star review on iTunes or whichever platform you choose. 
If you want to tell people to subscribe, hey, we won't be mad about that. We promise. We promise. And if you're old-fashioned, boot up your Apple IIe and fire up a game of Oregon Trail. Eventually, when one of your crew dies of dysentery, you get to write a message on that little tombstone, and we'd be happy to play the next game and go ahead and read it for you. How's that for a deep dive? <laughs> Until next time, for Historians are sending out AMA. You know what's funny, by the way, I some it was like a week or two ago, I got some some I was doing something online and there was like there there's like a million different podcast networks now, like different, you know, services like get they'll they'll send us an email, get uh, get verified on our service. And I can't remember which one of this was, but there was some pod this service and it was like verify your podcast. And I was like, No, well get a hundred of these emails a day. Like so but one, I found some other podcast that was on it. I don't know what I, I, I get into this rabbit hole and I find that a lot of these services will list your podcast anyway. They just will say it's unclaimed. But I found this like corner of the internet where there's, there, there was a, our, our show is like mentioned on one of these and somebody was like leaving us comments in like this really ob- obscure podcast networky place. Right. And so like I'm reading the comments and it's like this one person who's just like, I love the show, but I hate the skits. I love the show, but I hate the skits. Please stop doing the skits. Please stop doing the skits. It like left four or five of these messages. It was like, I was like, no, (laughs) I'm going to do more skits now. (laughs) Well, a lot of other people. They're off there somewhere screaming into the the void because we got our first like one star review ever. Yeah. Like no explanation. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, come on. Uh, And I I wonder if it's that person. Could Could be. be. I don't know, man. I actually thought it would have been, yeah, who knows. I actually believe ratings a little more when it's like 4.7 with yeah. oh, totally. three one-star reviews or something with no explanation. <laughs> and they'll be All like, right. it was closed. <clears throat> Ours will be like, podcast didn't load. We're like, dude, that's not. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we need I was having a bad day too. when I listened to this. <laughs> one star. One <laughs> star.